morning again, I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's page 851, page 851. If you find your way there, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a holy God, but yet in your holiness, in your perfection, Lord, you cannot stand sin. And Lord, if it be the case without a Savior, Lord, we would be cast straight into hell. Lord, but we thank you for the gift of Jesus, the one who makes us holy. Lord, that when you look on us, you don't see our sins, but you see the righteousness and perfection of Jesus Christ. Lord, as this idea of Christ giving himself for many has been full in Mark's gospel, Lord. It's just another opportunity to remind ourselves that you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, thank you. Help us now as we come to your word to be challenged, to be changed, to be made more like Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. We're looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 45, or excuse me, verses 43 to 52. And immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck his servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Well, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him, and with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. How many of you love whodunits? You love mystery stories, trying to figure out uh, who the killer is. Think of Agatha Christie or the Hardy Boys or some of those other classic series and the stories of, of who was the killer. Some of us love to play the game Clue, right? It was Professor plum with the candlestick in the conservatory, you know, whatever, whatever situation it was. We love this idea of not knowing, but trying to figure out. And even as we think of the real world around us, the mystery and the theories around high profile deaths, who did it, right? The classic conspiracy theory of who shot uh, President Kennedy. You know, was it Lee Harvey Oswald? Could the bullet curve? Who did it? Or if you're of a certain age, perhaps you remember the TV show, Who Shot JR, right? <laughs> Who did it? Who done it? We love the suspense and the trying to figure it out. Carrie and I were watching a show last night, and it was a bit of a mystery. And as the story unfolded, both her and I looked at each other. No, 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 it's the sister. It's the sister. And sure enough, we were right. We had seen it enough that we kind of figured out the, the, the flow of uh, of the series that it's, oh, is this person? We love the suspense and not knowing and trying to figure it out. 
There's been some of that a little bit here in the 14th chapter of Mark. Jesus says, one of these disciples will betray me. And they all ask, well, who's going to do it? Who's the one? Now, ultimately, we know as the reader that it's Judas. And Judas is dismissed from the disciples and he goes to find the religious leaders and their guards to come and to arrest Jesus. But there's always been this question, who killed Jesus? Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? And that's a multifaceted question with a multifaceted answer. Of course, we know everything is according to God's sovereign plan and his purposes, the way he orchestrates it, but who is held responsible? Well, Jesus willingly gave up his own life. What does Jesus say? Nobody takes my life from me. I willingly give it up on my own. But yet we understand that there is the responsibility given here to these individuals who've come to arrest Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching and he says this in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We see the interplay here of God's sovereign plan, Peter says. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's sovereignty was ultimately in control, but... Who is responsible here? Peter's preaching says, you are. The nation, these lawless men, these religious leaders, the Jews are responsible. In Mark 14, we see here how the sovereignty of God is interacting with the actions of humans. As Jesus is arrested and as this mob comes, we see how as Pastor James so eloquently put it, stupid human actions interplay with the sovereignty of God to bring about God's plan. Our big idea this morning is this, is that Jesus being delivered into human hands continues to display the sovereign plan of God through human actions. God's sovereign plan is at work through human actions. And this is important for us because some people would take this whole idea of Jesus being crucified and basically murdered as an interruption to God's plan or that God was not in control, but rather, no, God was controlled through these individuals to bring about his plan. Outright rejection by Judas and the religious leaders, abandonment by the disciples, even inappropriate action by the disciples. Cutting off the ear of someone demonstrate how their failings are used by God. So let's look here. We're going to see three responses and then uh, three points of application for us. So first off, as we think of God's sovereign plan through human actions, we see God working through outright rejection. Outright rejection. Verse 43, Mark uses one of his favorite words, if not his favorite word, immediately says, and immediately, instantaneously, as Jesus concludes talking with the disciples who couldn't stay awake, as they couldn't stay awake, he says, look, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, he, while he was still speaking, Mark records for us that Judas came. And look how Judas, or how Mark names Judas. He's one of the 12. 
I think Mark here is just throwing a little, little shade here on Judas, how Judas should have known better. Judas was one of the disciples. Again, he was with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. He saw the ins and the outs behind the curtain. He knew who Jesus was. He saw everything that happened. But yet here he comes, and who's with him? A crowd. And not just any crowd. It's a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. This crowd that comes with Judas is more than likely the temple guard. So Rome had control of the area. They were sovereign over it, and they had their uh, centurions and their soldiers and their guards. But the the Jews also had the temple guards who kept peace in the temple. They were kind of like the Jewish policemen. And here, it seems as if they come with Judas. The other gospel accounts give a fuller, more fleshed-out picture. But you see with what they come. They come with swords and clubs. Swords, obviously, for attacking clubs with the idea of, of a rod or a baton used to, to use crowd control. I'm sure many of us have seen uh, you know, riot police and they're all gear and they're get up and they have their, their clubs that they can use to encourage people with. And same idea. These are coming, these guards are coming in case anybody gets out of hand. Some believe that there is a good attachment of Roman soldiers. We aren't necessarily sure exactly the full makeup of this crowd, but needless to say, it was what we would call overkill. Here is Jesus and 11 disciples in the garden in the middle of the night, and this huge crowd, a mob, comes to arrest him. They don't want anything getting out of hand. As the crowd arrives, we read of Judas's plan, verse 44. Now the betrayer, it's interesting how Judas goes from being one of the 12 to the betrayer. Again, Mark throwing a little shade here on Judas. The betrayer had given them a sign. What was the sign? The one I will kiss is the man. Now you and I might blush at this thought, but this was a very common greeting in the first century and still is around the world. To greet someone with a kiss on the cheek or even just the action of it is a sign of respect between friends, of familiarity, of saying, I know you, you know me, we have a relationship. And Judah says, the one that I do this to, he is the man. He says, the one that I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Which is interesting. Judas's command would be to seize him and to lead him away under guard. Would there be anything in Judas' experience, that would lend itself to saying, Jesus is going to fight back. Probably not. Or that Jesus is going to cause a ruckus here. No, but the, almost the paranoia of Judas in arresting Jesus is seen. He has outright rejected who Jesus is. Verse 46, And they laid hands on him, and they seized him. They seized him. Why? Because, verse 45, we see what Judas does. When he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. This is a term of endearment. It means teacher. This is an insult in and of itself. Judas coming up to Jesus and saying, Oh, Rabbi, and giving him a kiss. What What a stark and drastic insult. Here is Judas coming up and calling Jesus teacher 
when he's learned absolutely nothing from him. This is a term of a close follower to a teacher. And yet Judas, these are, are, are the words of a betrayer. Teacher, rabbi, and he kisses him. They lay hands on him and they seized him. This idea of seizing is the idea of, of, of binding up, of, of making sure he's bound. Whether it was tying his hands or making it so he didn't have free use of, of his arms, they were very serious. Judas kisses Jesus and the mob arrests him in verse 46. They lay hands on him and, and seize him. These soldiers and temple guards, whether they were Jewish or Roman, they have completely rejected Jesus. Judas himself, the religious leaders themselves, a close follower and the supposed shepherds of the nation have rejected the true Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lamb who's come to take away our sins. Here is where we see this playing out. The religious leaders have paid off Judas to betray Jesus. This is an outright rejection. There's no way around it. And this rejection is used by God to bring about this ultimate plan of redemption. Those who should know better but reject the truth are used by God. Even in their wicked choices, the good, sovereign plan of God is brought about. That just baffles my mind. I don't know what they were trying to get away with. Of course, they have rejected Jesus, so they don't fully comprehend who God is and the way that he works because they've rejected Jesus. But how do they think that arresting Jesus is going to get rid of him? Here's a man who can do miracles, and you think arresting him and putting him on trial is going to fix your problems? Even in their rejection of Jesus, they show their ignorance and their foolishness. And even in their sinful choices, God is going to work something absolutely miraculous. So the outright rejection of the religious leaders in Judas. Now we see this inappropriate action that God uses, that he records for us. Verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant. Now, Peter should write a thank you to Mark, okay? Because Mark doesn't record who did it, <laughs> but John does. <laughs> That's totally a John thing, right? <laughs> John totally calls out Peter, we read uh, in John's gospel, that this is Peter, the one who stood by, stood by Jesus, drew his sword. So why Peter had a sword, we don't necessarily know, but he was armed, he was ready to fight, and he struck the ear of the high priest's servant, cut off his ear. So he either has very good aim or terrible aim. If he was going for the ear, good shot. If he was going for the head, a little bit to the outside, right? Jesus, in the other Gospels, we record how he heals the man's ear right there. Even in the midst of him being arrested, Jesus shows grace and mercy to someone who is ultimately rejecting him. But this disciple, who we know as Peter, responds inappropriately. He wants to fight, and he, he doesn't get it. There's some excitement here. It's not a, a regular arrest. This has to happen. Jesus responds with a few rhetorical questions. Why do they need clubs? Why do they need swords to capture him? This total buildup is overkill. And Jesus says, you've come out against me as a robber. 
with swords and clubs to capture. And that idea of robber, that word is the idea of a, an insurrectionist, somebody who's trying to cause a revolt, somebody who wants to just turn over the apple cart. Jesus is saying, you're coming at me like I'm some great political enemy of you and Rome. I've done nothing like that. And he even says, I've been with you in the temple, teaching day after day, and yet you did not seize me. Jesus says, you had every opportunity to arrest me in the temple in front of everyone to make a show of force. But yet, why haven't you? Why have you used these underhanded ways, these, in a sense, inappropriate ways, this inappropriate action to arrest me? You did not seize me. Their fear and their hypocrisy is pointed out by Jesus. And when he calls them to task on that fact, he's been teaching in the temple that they never arrested him there. Of course, Jesus knows the reasoning in their hearts. They fear the crowds and want to conserve the power and authority that they think they have. Jesus points this out, yet reminds them that what they're doing is not their own planning, but is according to the scriptures. I love that last phrase of verse 49. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus has mentioned this several times. This idea of the fulfillment of God's plan of the scriptures. Well, what scriptures would, would come to mind? There are many throughout the, the, uh, the book of Isaiah, of Jesus as the suffering servant, of the fact that the Messiah would come and be betrayed by his own. Right? We looked at last week, I believe it was, from Zechariah, how you, you kill the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. There's so many of these Old Testament fulfillments that are our prophecies that are coming to fulfillment through this interaction and this arrest of Jesus, through this inappropriate action of Peter trying to fight, of the underhanded ways of the religious leaders, we see God's sovereign plan, the scriptures being fulfilled. Nothing is happening that is not according to God's plan. The scriptures are being fulfilled even through outright rejection, inappropriate action, and lastly, through the abandonment of the disciples. We've talked about this already, but this is another theme that Mark is, is demonstrating for us, how Jesus is going to have no one. He's talked about it several times, and the disciples have said, we won't forget you, right? They're all in agreement. Verse 31, Peter says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Okay, and then... We come to the garden and Jesus is praying. What are the disciples doing? They're falling asleep, already demonstrating that they're going to fail. And here we see the culmination of this. As he is arrested, as he is seized, verse 50, very simply, Mark writes for us, and they all left him and fled. This is a brief statement. They refers to the disciples as the crowd that arrests Jesus would take him into custody. What Jesus has prophesied had come to pass. All have forsaken him. They have all fled. Peter, James, and John, the remaining disciples, have run off into the night. While Peter finds his way to where Jesus is in the courtyard, and perhaps John weasels his way into the trial area of Jesus' imprisonment, ultimately, no one stands with Jesus. No one says, I'm on his side. No one partakes in the events as Jesus does. Humanly speaking, he is now alone. The disciples abandon him. You might think if you were to 
be yourself, God, and design the plan of redemption, that you would have this great group of people coming with the Messiah to accomplish this task. And as we read the gospel, we see how that is turned on its head. Jesus is, comes as a child in a backwater town to parents who really have no political or economical standing of significance. And as he grows, he's a carpenter. He comes from Galilee. He has 12 followers, and those followers mainly are fishermen or those looked down upon. They're not highly educated men with position or standing. And he uses these individuals to do amazing things, but yet when it comes to it, they even flee, and he is left on his own. Not how you and I would write things up, I don't think, but it's the way that God has planned it. They all left him and fled. Now we come to verses 51 and 52, and perhaps are some of the most unique and strange verses in the entire Bible. (laughs) It's the only place that this is recorded. Verse 51, And a young man followed him, that is Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What is going on here? (laughs) Why does Mark include this? There's a lot of different ideas, but these verses leave us scratching our heads. This information is only found in Mark's gospel. So the question is, who is this young man? Um, Why did he only have a linen cloth on? And uh, why did Mark include this? There's lots of ideas that people have put out there. Uh, One, that it just could be a young man who was attracted to the crowd at night, and he was sleeping, and he was sleeping in his, basically his, his simple robe of linen cloth and got up and went out to see what was going on, right? Tell me you've never looked out your windows at flashing lights at night, right? Um, when we lived in a small town where I grew up, uh, we had some, uh, a few neighbors that were frequented by the local law enforcement. And so we would often be peeking, what's going on? It could be that. This is just an individual. Uh, another idea that this man is actually Mark that Mark was this young man who would have been sneaking along, following the crowd, and as he was captured, tried to get away, and as he was running away, they grabbed and basically grabbed whatever he had on, and he ran away naked. This could be Mark because Mark knew about it, and so he included it. We don't necessarily know uh, who this individual is, but I think Mark's main point is that everybody who was following Jesus, has left him. Even somebody who was sneaking along, who was captured, has ran away, has abandoned him. There are none left to identify with him. He is alone. He has been handed over to the wicked rulers. And while much difficulty lays ahead, none of it is happening outside of God's plan. As Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. So through the outright rejection of Jesus, through the inappropriate action of his captors and his disciples, God is working, and even through the abandonment of his followers, God is working through Jesus. So, what do we learn from this? Obviously, we understand God is sovereign, but that's important for us to remember. Our first point of application is this, is that nothing thwarts the plan of God. Have you ever made plans and then something comes up and completely ruins your plans? How many of you say, I hate that? (laughs) Right? You have your order of the day, things you want to get done, you got your to-do list, and all of a sudden something pops up 
And there goes the day. And you're frustrated. And you're angry. Maybe you respond in not a nice way, right? That demonstrates our own sinfulness, our selfishness, our control. And maybe you have a plan that is, it's kind of a long-term plan of what you want to get to, but yet this unexpected thing happens, right? This unknown occurs. Whether it's something small like a flat tire or you hit a deer or something is closed or something's canceled, weather, you name it, something might stop our plans. But in our human sense, we see these things and we can get frustrated. But yet in a broader divine sense, Nothing thwarts the plan of God. Nothing pops up that God says, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, what am I going to do now? Oh, I didn't see him responding that way. Uh Uh-oh, I I didn't see that coming. Because if that happened to God, would God be God? No. If if God was surprised by something, he himself would not be God because then there'd be an aspect, something outside of his control that he didn't know about. And if you're... If he doesn't have control of all things, then he is less than God, and he's not God. Nothing thwarts the plan of God. Even as we look at the sinful world around us and sinful individuals, and we think of the rising and falling of nations, and what is God doing? We don't necessarily know, but we know that nothing stops his plan. One author said this, The theme of God's sovereign purpose continues in this episode. As Jesus again points out all that is happening, even his betrayal is the fulfillment of Scripture, part of God's saving purpose. God will accomplish his plan despite and even through the evil actions of sinful human beings. That is helpful. That's helpful because when we look at the things around us and think, what are you doing, God? We don't know, and we don't have to know. And that's part of trusting God is saying, God, I know you are in charge and in control, and I look at this, and from my finite human mind, I would not do it that way. I would not allow that to happen. But yet you sovereignly are in control, so I'm going to rest in the fact that you're in control, and I'm going to do what I know I'm supposed to do according to your word. I'm going to rest in the fact that you are in control, that you are God. So nothing thwarts the plan of God. Secondly, sometimes the plan of God involves hard things. There's this idea out there that if you are truly following God, nothing is going to go wrong in your life. That's a lie. That's a false theology. That if you magically follow whatever you think the will of God is for your life, that everything's going to go smoothly. It's not the case. It's not the case. Sometimes the plan of God involves hard things. It involves difficult things. It involves hard people. It involves your own sin. Because when we take a step back and think of the plan of God as individuals for our own lives, what is God's will for us? According to 1 Thessalonians 4, the will of God is our sanctification. According to Romans 8, 28, and 29, the will of God is that we would be conformed into the image of His Son. God's plan for you and I is to be made more like Jesus every day so that we can give him honor and glory. And sometimes that involves hard things. That involves sin and things we really like in the flesh, but we know are sinful. Sometimes that involves going through the ups and downs of life, through physical things, through mental struggles, through relational struggles. Sometimes the plan of God involves hard things. 
but often it's the hard things that bear much fruit. The one lady's Bible study has been going through James because my wife is leading it. I've been going through James as well. (laughs) And it's interesting as we looked at chapter one, right? Count it all joy when you fall into very trials. It's not if, but it's when. James knows that these things are going to happen. <laughs> There's no way that you can escape them. So what are you going to do in them? Are you going to cry and whine and make a, a fit? Or are you going to cry out to God and say, God, help me. What, what do you want me to learn through this? How are you changing me? Sometimes the plan of God involves hard things. Some people are attracted to Christianity, one author says, for social reasons or business opportunities. Others hope Christianity will meet their emotional needs or make their problems go away. Yet when temptations and difficulties and hardships come, they decide it's not worth it, and they move on to other self-help, self-help fads. They are like the seed that falls on the rocky ground in the parable of the sower. They receive the word with joy, but then when things come up and choke out the seed, they fall away. And they do not remain. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. Sometimes the plan of God involves hard things. And thirdly, as we live out the plan of God, it means that we do things God's way. Following Jesus means doing things His way. As even Jesus Himself demonstrated, not my will, but your will be done, Father. He submitted Himself to the plan that His Father had specifically for Him. And as we seek to follow after Christ in 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 spite of all the things around us, God's plan for you and I be made more like Jesus. We're not using Jesus to promote our own agendas. It's about taking up our cross to follow Him, adopting the self-giving message and mindset of the kingdom of God, of the gospel. Like Mark has said through the second half of his book, what does it mean to follow Jesus, to be on the inside? to take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow after him. The sovereign plan of God is worked out even through the actions of sinful individuals, through rejection, inappropriate action, and abandonment here. And so we know nothing can thwart the plan of God. Sometimes the plan of God involves hard things. And when we seek to follow Jesus, we need to do things his way. We don't follow him on our terms. Because I think that's what the disciples would want to. They were willing to to fight and to stand with Jesus. Some people wanted Jesus to be the Messiah so that they could overthrow the Roman government and set up this this self-rule of Israel to, to bring in by political force this kingdom. But yet, that wasn't the way that Jesus was going to bring about things. Following Jesus means doing things his way. So just as the Lord sovereignly works through the wicked decisions of Judas, the religious leaders, the foolishness and the abandonment of the disciples. It's a reminder to us that as God works out his plan, even today, nothing can thwart it. That God uses difficult things to bring about his plan. And that as we seek to follow him, we do it his way, not our way. And as we take a step back and look at this whole picture at the end of the Gospel of Mark, it reminded me of Genesis 50 verse 20, which is what we read this morning in our scripture reading. Joseph is speaking to his brothers in Egypt. If you remember, Joseph and his brothers didn't have the best relationship. They tried to, first they were going to kill him. Then one of them had mercy and said, no, no, let's just throw him in a pit. Look like we killed him and we'll get, gain some favor, right? 
And then ultimately he was sold into slavery and they forgot about him. He was pretty much good as dead. Several years later in the sovereign plan of God, there's a famine. G- uh, uh, Joseph had risen through the ranks. He'd been in jail. He had been you know, charged with trying to sleep with Potiphar's wife. All these different things, all these hard things that God used to put Joseph in a position where God wanted him. And when the time came and his brothers came, and as they cowered before him because, well, Jacob had died, and so now what is Joseph going to do? Joseph looks at him and says, you meant this for evil. In your human actions, in your human natures, you worked this out for evil, for destruction, for punishment, because of your sinful attitudes, but yet God meant it for good. Through the sinful actions of the brothers of Joseph, who sold him into slavery, Joseph rose, had the grain, brought the nation down, right? And they grew and they grew and they grew. And then all of a sudden, a new leader stepped into position. Then God drew them out of Egypt, demonstrating salvation through the Exodus, making the covenant with his people. We see how the nation grew and God was continued to be faithful even through the sinful actions of Joseph's brother. And so as we look here at Jesus, these people meant it for evil, but God is going to do something that's much, much greater than any evil that they could ever do. So let's rest in the sovereign plan of God. Nothing can thwart it. God uses hard things. And ultimately, we need to submit ourselves to his plan and his will for our lives. Father, thank you for the opportunity again just to reflect on who you are in your sovereignty over all activity. Lord, yes, evil happens, sin happens. You are not the author of that, but yet you use those actions, Lord, to bring about your purpose. Lord, we think of it in Joseph and his brothers, but even more so here in Jesus and these who are arresting him. Ultimately, Lord, to bring him to the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins, so that we can have forgiveness, we can have salvation, and Lord, that we can become a follower of you, to be declared righteous and to have access and to be one of your children forever. We thank you for your sovereign plan. Allow us to rest in it, even in the midst of the ups and downs of life, to keep our eyes settled on you, Lord, to trust you. Lord, we love you. Pray this in your name.